Chapter 8 of Miss Cayley's Adventures. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jacqueline McKnight. Miss Cayley's Adventures by Grant Allen. Chapter 8. The Adventure of the Pea-Green Patrician Away to India! A life on the ocean wave once more, and may it prove less wavy. In plain prose, my arrangement with my proprietor, Mr. Elworthy, thus we speak in the newspaper trade, included a trip to Bombay for myself and Elsie. So as soon as we had drained Upper Egypt journalistically dry, we returned to Cairo on our road to Suez. I am glad to say my letters to the daily telephone gave satisfaction. My employer wrote, You are a born journalist. I confess this surprised me, for I have always considered myself a truthful person. Still, as he evidently meant it for praise, I took the doubtful compliment in good part and offered no remonstrance. I have a mercurial temperament. My spirits rise and fall as if they were consuls. Monotonous Egypt depressed me, as it depressed the Israelites, but the passage of the Red Sea set me sounding my timbrel. I love fresh air, I love the sea, if the sea will but behave itself, and I positively reveled in the change from Egypt. Unfortunately, we had taken our passages by a P&O steamer from Suez to Bombay many weeks beforehand, so as to secure good berths. And still more unfortunately, in a letter to Lady Georgina, I had chanced to mention the name of our ship and the date of the voyage. I kept up a spasmodic correspondence with Lady Georgina nowadays. Tuppence her penny a fortnight. The dear, cantankerous, racy old lady had been the foundation of my fortunes, and I was genuinely grateful to her. Or rather, I ought to say, she had been their second foundress for I will do myself the justice to admit that the first was my own initiative and enterprise. I flatter myself if I have the knack of taking the tide on the turn and am justly proud of it. But, being a grateful animal, I wrote once a fortnight to report progress to Lady Georgina. Besides, let me whisper, strictly between ourselves, t'was an indirect way of hearing about Harold. This time, however, as events turned out, I recognized that I had made a grave mistake in confiding my movements to my shrewd old lady. She did not betray me on purpose, of course, but I gathered later that casually, in conversation, she must have mentioned the fact and date of my sailing before somebody who ought to have no concern in it. And the somebody, I found, had governed himself accordingly. All this, however, I only discovered afterwards. So without anticipating, I will narrate the facts exactly as they occurred to me. When we mounted the gangway of the Jumna at Suez, and began the process of frizzling down the Red Sea, I noted on deck almost at once an odd-looking young man of twenty-two or thereabouts with a curious, faint, pea-green complexion. He was the wishy-washiest young man I had ever beheld in my life an achromatic study. In spite of the delicate pea-greeniness of his skin, all the colouring matter of the body seemed somehow to have faded out of him. Perhaps he had been bleached. 
as he leaned over the taffrail gazing down with open mouth and vacant stare at the water i took a good long look at him he interested me much because he was so exceptionally uninteresting a pallid anemic indefinite hobbledehoy with a high narrow forehead and sketchy features he had watery restless eyes of an insipid light blue thin yellow hair almost white in its paleness and twitching hands that played nervously all the time with a shadowy moustache this shadowy moustache seemed to absorb as a rule the best part of his attention it was so sparse and so blanched that he felt it continually to assure himself no doubt of the reality of its existence i need hardly add that he wore an eyeglass he was an aristocrat i felt sure even in christchurch no ordinary person could have been quite so flavourless imbecility like his is only to be attained as a result of long and judicious selection he went on gazing in a vacant way at the water below an ineffectual patrician smile playing feebly round the corners of his mouth meanwhile then he turned and stared at me as i lay back in my deck-chair for a minute he looked me over as if i were a horse for sale when he had finished inspecting me he beckoned to somebody at the far end of the quarter-deck the somebody sidled up with a differential air which confirmed my belief in the pea-green young man's aristocratic origin it was such deference as the british flunkies pay only to blue blood for he has gradations of flunkydom he is respectful to wealth polite to acquired rank but servile only to hereditary nobility indeed you can make a rough guess at the social status of the person he addresses by observing which one of his twenty-seven nicely graduated manners he adopts in addressing him the pea-green young man glanced over in my direction and murmured something to the satellite whose back was turned toward me i felt sure from his attitude he was asking whether i was the person he suspected me to be the satellite nodded assent whereat the pea-green young man screwing up his face to fix his eyeglass stared harder than ever he must be heir to a peerage i felt convinced nobody short of that rank would consider himself entitled to stare with such frank unconcern at an unknown lady presently it further occurred to me that the satellite's back seemed strangely familiar i have seen that man somewhere elsie i whispered putting aside the wisps of hair that blew about my face so have i dear elsie answered with a slight shudder and i was in instinctively aware that i too disliked him as elsie spoke the man turned and strolled slowly past us with that ineffable insolence which is the other side of the flunkey's insufferable self-abatement he cast a glance at us as he went by a withering glance of brazen effrontery we knew him of course it was that variable star our old acquaintance mr higginson the courier he was here as himself this time no longer the count or the mysterious faith healer the diplomat hid his rays under the garb of the man-servant depend upon it elsie i cried clutching her arm with a vague sense of fear this man means mischief there is danger ahead when a creature of higginson's sort 
who has risen to be a count and a fashionable position descends again to be a courier you may rest assured it is because he has something to gain by it he has some deep scheme afloat and we are part of it his master looks weak enough and silly enough for anything elsie answered eyeing the suspected lordling i should think he is just the sort of man such a wily rogue would naturally fasten upon when a wily rogue gets hold of a weak fool who is also dishonest i said the two together may make a formidable combination but never mind we're forewarned i think i shall be even with him that evening at dinner in the saloon the pea-green young man strolled in with a jaunty air and took his seat next to us the red sea by the way was kinder than the mediterranean it allowed us to dine from the very first evening cards had been laid on the plates to mark our places i glanced at my neighbours it bore the inscription viscount southminster that was the name of lord kyneston's eldest son lady georgina's nephew harold tillington's cousin so this was the man who might possibly inherit mr marmaduke ashurst's money i remembered now how often and how fervently lady georgina had said kyneston's sons are all fools if the rest came up to sample i was inclined to agree with her it also flashed across me that lord southminster might have heard through higginson of our meeting with mr marmaduke ashurst in florence and of my acquaintance with harold tillington at schlagenbad and lungard with a woman's instinct i jumped at the fact that the pea-green young man had taken passage by this boat on purpose to baffle both me and harold thinking it over it seemed too that he might have various possible points of view on the matter he might desire for example that harold should marry me under the impression that his marriage with a penniless outsider would annoy his uncle for the pea-green young man doubtless thought i was still to mr ashurst that dreadful adventuress if so his obvious cue would be to promote a good understanding between harold and myself in order to make us marry so that the urbane old gentleman might then disinherit his favourite nephew and make a new will in southminster's interest or again the pea-green young man might on the contrary be aware that mr ashurst and i had got on admirably together when we met at florence in which case his aim would naturally be to find out something that might set the rich uncle against me yet once more he might merely have heard that i had drawn up uncle marmaduke's will at the office and he might desire to worm the contents of it out of me whichever was his design i resolved to be upon my guard in every word i said to him and leave no door open to any trickery either way for one thing i felt sure that the colourless young man had torn himself away from the mud honey of piccadilly for this voyage to india only because he had heard there was a chance of meeting me that was a politic move whoever planned it himself or higginson for a week on board ship with a person or persons is the very best chance of getting thrown in with them whether they like it or lump it they can easily avoid you it was while i was pondering these things in my mind and resolving with myself not to give myself away that the young man with the pea-green face lounged in and dropped into the next seat to me 
he was dressed amongst other things in a dinner jacket and white tie for myself i detest such fopperies on board ship they seem to me out of place they conflict with the infinite possibilities of the situation one stands too near the reality of things evening dress and mal de mer sort ill together as my neighbour sat down he turned to me with an inane smile which occupied all his face good evening he said in a baronial draw miss cayley i gather i asked the skipper's leave to sit next to ye we ought to be friends rather i think you know my poor dear old aunt lady georgina fawley i bowed a somewhat freezing bow lady georgina is one of my dearest friends i answered no really poor dear old georgie got somebody to stick up for her at last has she now that's what i call chivalrous of ya magnanimous isn't it i like to see people stick up for their friends and it must be a novelty for georgie for between you and me a more cantankerous spiteful acidulated old cough drop than the poor dear soul it'd be difficult to hit upon lady georgina has brains i answered and they enable her to recognize a fool when she sees him i will admit that she does not suffer fools gladly he turned to me with a sudden sharp look in the depths of the lack-lustre eyes already it began to strike me that though the pea-green young man was in name he had his due proportion of a certain insidious practical cunning that's true he answered me and according to her almost everybody's a fool especially her relations there's a fine knack of sweeping generalization about dear skinny old georgie the few people she really likes are all archangels the rest are blithering idiots there's no middle course with her i held my peace frigidly she thinks me a very special and peculiar fool he went on crumbling his bread lady georgina i answered is a person of exceptional discrimination i would almost always accept her judgment on any one as practically final he laid down his soup spoon fondled the imperceptible moustache with his tapering fingers then broke once more into a cheerful expansive smile which reminded me of nothing so much as the village idiot it spread over his face as the splash from a stone spreads over a mill pond now that's a nice cheerful sort of thing to say to a fella he ejaculated fixing his eyeglass in his eye with a few fierce contortions of his facial muscles that's encouraging don't you know as the foundation of an acquaintance makes a good cornerstone calculated to place things at once upon you call a friendly basis georgie said you had a pretty wit i see now why she admired it birds of a feather very wise old proverb i reflected that after all this young man had nothing overt against him beyond a fishy blue eye and an inane expression so feeling that i had perhaps gone a little too far 
I continued after a minute. And your uncle, how is he? Mommy, he inquired after an elephantine smile, and then I perceived it was a form of humour with him, or rather a cheap substitute, to speak of his elder relations by their abbreviated Christian names without any prefix. Mommy's doing very well, thank you, as well as could be expected. In fact, better. Habakkuk on the brain, it's carrying him off at last. He has Bright's disease very bad, drank port, don't you know, and wouldn't trouble this wicked world much longer with his presence. It will be a happy release, especially for his nephews. I was really grieved, for I had grown to like the urbane old gentleman, as I had grown to like the cantankerous old lady. In spite of his fussiness and his stock exchange views on the interpretation of scripture, his genuine kindliness and his real liking for me had softened my heart to him, and my face must have shown my distress, for the pea-green young man added quickly with an afterthought, But you needn't be afraid, you know. It's all right for Harold Tillington. You ought to know that as well as anyone, and better, for it was you who drew up his will for him at Florence. I flushed crimson, I believe, then he knew all about me. I was not asking on Mr. Tillington's account, I answered. I asked because I have a personal feeling of friendship for your uncle, Mr. Ashurst. His hand strayed up to the straggling yellow hairs on his upper lip once more, and he smiled again, this time with a curious undercurrent of foolish craftiness. That's a good one, he answered. Georgie told me you were original. Mom is a millionaire, and many people love millionaires for their money. But to love Mommy for himself, I do call that originality. Why, wait for age, he's acknowledged to be the most potential old boa in London society. I like Mr. Ashurst because he has a kind heart and some genuine instincts, I answered. He has not allowed all human feeling to be replaced by a cheap mask of Paul Mall's cynicism. Oh, I say, how's that for preaching? Don't you manage to give it hot to a fellow neither? And at sight, too, without the usual three days of grace. Have some champagne. I'm a forgiving creature. No, thank you. I prefer this hock. Your friend, then? And he motioned the steward to pass the bottle. To my great disgust, Elsie held out her glass. I was annoyed at that. It showed she had missed the drift of our conversation and was therefore lacking in feminine intuition. I should be sorry if I had allowed the higher mathematics to kill out in me the most distinctively womanly faculty. From that first day forth, however, in spite of this beginning, Lord Southminster almost persecuted me with his persistent attentions. He did all a man could possibly do to please me. I could not make out precisely what he was driving at, but I saw he had some artful game of his own to play, and that he was playing it subtly. I also saw that as vapid as he was, his vapidity did not prevent him from being worldly wise with the wisdom of the self-seeking man of the world who utterly distrusts and disbelieves in all higher emotions of humanity. 
he harped so often on this string that on our second day out as we lolled on the deck in the heat i had to rebuke him sharply he had been sneering for some hours there are two kinds of silly simplicity lord southminster i said at last one kind is the silly simplicity of the rustic who trusts everybody the other kind is the silly simplicity of the poor moral clubman who trusts nobody it's just as foolish and just as one-sided to overlook the good as to overlook the evil in humanity if you trust everyone you are likely to be taken in but if you trust no one you put yourself at serious practical disadvantages besides losing half the joy of living then you think me a fool like georgie he broke out i should never be rude enough to say so i answered fanning myself well you're what i call a first-rate companion for a voyage down the red sea he put in gazing abstractedly at the awnings such a lovely freezing mixture a fellow doesn't need ices when you're on tap i recommend you as a refrigerator i am glad i answered demurely if i have secured your approbation in that humble capacity i'm sure i have tried hard for it yet nothing that i could say seemed to put the man down in spite of rebuffs he was assiduous in running down the companion ladder for my parasol or my smelling bottle he fetched me chairs he stayed me with cushions he offered to lend me books he pestered me to drink his wine, and he kept Elsie in champagne, which she annoyed me by accepting. Poor dear Elsie clearly failed to understand the creature. He's so kind and polite, Brownie, isn't he? She would observe in her simple fashion. Do you know, I think he's quite taken a fancy to you. And he'll be an earl by and by. I call it romantic. How lovely it would seem, dear, to see you a countess. Elsie, I said, severely with one hand on her arm, you are a dear little soul, and I'm very fond of you, but if you think I could sell myself for a coronet to a pasty-faced young man with a pea-green complexion and glassy blue eyes, I can only say, my child, you have misread my character. He isn't a man, he's a lump of putty. I think Elsie was quite shocked that I should apply these terms to a courtesy lord, the eldest son of a peer nature had endowed her with a profound british belief that peers should be spoken of in choice and peculiar language if a peer's a fool lady georgina said once to me people think you should say his temperament does not fit him for the conduct of affairs if he's a roux or a drunkard they think you should say he has unfortunate weaknesses what most of all convinced me however that the wishy-washy young man with the pea-green complexion must be playing some stealthy game was the demeanour and mental attitude of mr higginson his courier after the first day higginson appeared to be politeness and deference itself to us he behaved to us both almost as if we belonged to the titled classes he treated us with the second best of his twenty-seven graduated manners he fetched and carried for us with courtly grace which recalled that distinguished diplomat the comte de la roche sur at the station at malines with lady georgina it is true at his politest moments i often caught the undercurrent of a wicked twinkle in his eye and felt sure he was doing it all with some profound motive 
but his external demeanour was everything that one could desire from a well-trained man-servant i could hardly believe it was the same man who had growled to me in florence i shall be even with you yet as he left our office do you know brownie elsie mused once i really begin to think we must have misjudged higginson he's so extremely polite perhaps after all he really is a count who has been exiled and impoverished for his political opinions i smiled and held my tongue silence cost nothing but mr higginson's political opinions i felt sure were of that simple communistic sort which the law in its blunt way calls fraudulent they consisted in a belief that all was his which he could lay his hands on higginson's a splendid fellow for his place you know miss cayley lord southminster said to me one evening as we were approaching aden what i like to think about him is he's so deuced intelligent extremely so i answered then the devil entered into me again he has the deuced intelligence even to take in lady georgina yes that's just it don't you know georgie told me that story screamingly funny wasn't it and i said to myself once higginson's the man for me i want a courier with jolly lots of brains and no bloomin scruples i'll entice this chap away from mommy and i did i outbid mommy oh yes he's a first-rate fella higginson what i want is a man who will do what he's told and ask no beastly unpleasant questions higginson is that man he's as sharp as a ferret and as dishonest as they make them he opened his hands with a gesture of unconcern all the better for my purposes see how frank i am miss cayley to tell the truth the truth is very rare you ought to respect me for it it depends somewhat upon the kind of truth i answered with a random shot i don't respect a man for instance for confessing to a forgery he winced not for months after did i know how a stone thrown at a venture had chanced to hit the spot and had vastly enhanced his opinion of my cleverness you have heard about dr fortescue langley too i suppose i went on oh yes wasn't it a real jam he did the doctor trick on a lady in switzerland and the way he has come it over dear simply old marmy he played marmy with ezekiel not so dusty was it he's too lovely for anything he's an edged tool i said yes that's why i use him an edged tool may cut the user's fingers not mine he answered taking out a cigarette oh dear no he can't turn against me he wouldn't dare to you see i have the fella entirely in my power i know all his little games and i can expose him any day 
but it suits me to keep him. I don't mind telling you, since I respect your intellect, that he and I are engaged in pulling off a big coup together. If it were not for that, I wouldn't be here. You don't catch me going so far from Newmarket and the Empire for nothing. I judged as much, I answered, and then I was silent. But I wondered to myself why the neutral-tinted young man should be so communicative to an obviously hostile stranger. For the next few days it amused me to show how hard our lordling tried to suit his conversation to myself and Elsie. He was absurdly anxious to humour us. Just at first, it is true, he had discussed the subjects that lay nearest to his own heart. He was an ardent votary of the noble quadruped, and he loved the turf, whose sward, we judged, he had trod mainly at Tattersall's. He spoke to us with erudition on two-year-old form, and gave us several safe things for spring handicaps. The oaks he considered a moral for Clorinda. He also retailed certain choice anecdotes about ladies whose Christian names were chiefly Totty and Flo, and whose honoured surnames have escaped my memory. Most of them flourished, I recollect, at the Frivolity Music Hall. But when he learned that our interest in the noble quadruped was scarcely more than tepid, and that we had never even visited the Friv, as he affectionately called it, he did his best in turn to acquire our subjects. He had heard us talk about Florence, for example, and he gathered from our talk that we loved its art treasures. So he set himself to work to be studiously artistic. It was a beautiful study in human ineptitude. Ah, yes, he murmured, turning the pale blue eyes ecstatically towards the masthead. Charming place, Florence. I dote on the pictures. I know them all by heart. I assure you, I've spent hours and hours feeding my soul in the galleries. And what particular painter does your soul most feed upon? I asked bluntly with a smile. The question staggered him. I could see him hunting through the vacant chambers of his brain for a Florentine painter. Then a faint light gleamed in the leaden eyes, and he fingered the straw-coloured moustache with that nervous hand till he almost put a visible point upon it. Ah, Raphael, he said tentatively with an inquiring air, yet beaming at his success. Don't you think so? Splendid artist, Raphael. And a very safe guess, I answered, leading him on. You can't go far wrong in mentioning Raphael, can you? But after him, he dived into the recesses of his memory again, peered about him for a minute or two, and brought back nothing. I can't remember the other fellow's name, he went on. They're all so much alike. All in Ellie, don't you know? But I recollect at the time they impressed me awfully. No doubt, I answered. He tried to look through me, and failed. Then he plunged, like the noble sportsman that he was, on a second fetch of memory. Ah, and Michelangelo, he went on, proud of his treasure trove. Sweet things, Michelangelo's. 
very sweet, I admitted. So simple, so touching, so tender, so domestic. I thought Elsie would explode, but she kept her countenance. The pea-green young man gazed at me uneasily. He had half an idea by this time that I was making game of him. However, he fished up a name once more and clutched at it. Savonarola, too, he had ventured. I adore Savonarola. His pictures are beautiful. And so rare, Elsie murmured. Then there is Father Diavolo, I suggested, going one better. How do you like Father Diavolo? He seemed to have heard the name before, but still he hesitated. Ah, what did he paint, he asked, with growing caution. I stepped him valiantly. Those charming angels, you know, I answered, with the roses and the glories. Oh, yes, I recollect. All askew, aren't they? Like this. I remember them very well. But a doubt flitted across his brain. Wasn't his name Father Angelico? His brother, I replied, casting truth to the winds. They worked together, you must have heard. One did the saints, the other the opposite. Division of labor, don't you see? Father Angelico, Father Diavolo. He fingered his cigarette with a dubious hand and wriggled his eyeglass tighter. Yes, beautiful, beautiful. But, growing suspicious apace, wasn't Father Diavolo also a composer? Of course, I assented. In his off time he composed. Those early Italians, so versatile, you see, so versatile. He had his doubts, but he suppressed them. And Torricelli, I went on with a side glance at Elsie, who was choking by this time. And Chianti, and Frittura, and Sicavelli, and Giolo Romano. His distrust increased. Now you're trying to make me commit myself, he drawled out. I remember Torricelli. He's the fella who used to paint all his women crooked. But Chianti's a wine. I've often drunk it. And Romano's. Well, every fella knows Romano's is a restaurant near the Gaiety Theatre. Besides, I continued in a drawl like his own, there are risotto and gnocchi and vermicelli and anchovy, all famous painters, and all of whom I don't doubt you admire. Elsie exploded at last, but he took no offence. He smiled inanely as if he rather enjoyed it. Look here, you know, he said with his crafty smile, that's one too much. I'm not taking any. You think yourselves very clever for kidding me with painters who are really macaroni and cheese and claret. Yet, if I were to tell you the Leha was run at Ascot, or the Caesar Witch at Doncaster, 
why, you'd be no wiser. When it comes to art, I don't have a look in. But I could tell you a thing or two about starting prices. And I was forced to admit that there he had reason. Still, I think he realized that he had better avoid the subject of art in the future, as we avoided the noble quadruped. He saw his limitations. Not to the last evening before we reached Bombay did I really understand the nature of my neighbour's project. That evening, as it chanced, Elsie had a headache and went below early. I stopped with her till she dozed off, then I slipped up on deck once more for a breath of fresh air before retiring for the night to the hot and stuffy cabins. It was an exquisite evening. The moon rode in the pale green sky of the tropics. A strange light still lingered on the western horizon. The stifling heat of the Red Sea had given way long since to the refreshing coolness of the Indian Ocean. I strolled a while on the quarter-deck and sat down at last near the stern. Next moment I was aware of somebody creeping up to me. "'Look here, Miss Cayley,' a voice broke in. "'I'm in luck at last. "'I've been waiting, oh, ever so long, for this opportunity.' I turned and faced him. "'Have you indeed?' I answered. "'Well, I have not, Lord Southminster.' I tried to rise, but he motioned me back to my chair. There were ladies on deck, and to avoid being noticed, I sank into my seat again. I want to speak to you, he went on in a voice that for him was almost impressive. Half a mo, Miss Cayley, I want to say this last night you misunderstand me. On the contrary, I answered, the trouble is that I understand you perfectly. No, you don't. Look here. He bent forward quite romantically. I'm going to be perfectly frank. Of course, you know that when I came on board this ship, I came to checkmate you. Of course, I replied. Why else should you and Higginson have bothered to come here? He rubbed his hands together. That's just it. You're always clever. You hit it first shot. But there's where the point comes in. At first, I only thought of how we could circumvent you. I treated you as the enemy. Now it's the other way. Miss Cayley, you're the cleverest woman I ever met in this world, and you extort my admiration. I could not repress a smile. I didn't know how it was. But I could see I possessed some mysterious attraction for the Ashurst family. I was fatal to Ashursts. Lady Georgina, Harold Tillington, the Honourable Marmaduke, Lord Southminster, different types as they were, all succumbed to me without one blow. You flatter me, I answered coldly. No, I don't, he cried, flashing his cups and gazing affectionately at his sleeve length. Upon my soul, I assure you, I mean it. I can't tell you how much I admire you. I admire your intellect. Every day I have seen you, I feel it more and more. Why, you're the only person who has ever outflanked my fella Higginson. 
As a rule, I don't think much of women. I've been through several London seasons, and lots of them have tried their level best to catch me. The cleverest mamas have been after me for their ethels. But I wasn't so easily caught. I dodged the ethels. With you, it's different. I feel... He paused. You're a woman a fella might be really proud of. You are too kind, I answered in my refrigerator voice. Well, will you take me? He asked, trying to seize my hand. Miss Cayley, if you will, you will make me unspeakably happy. It was a great effort for him, and I was sorry to crush it. I regret, I said, that I am compelled to deny your unspeakable happiness. Oh, but you don't catch on. You mistake. Let me explain. You're backing the other man. Now, I happen to know about that, and I assure ya, it's an error. Take my word for it. You're staking your money on the wrong fella. I do not understand you, I replied, drawing away from his approach. And what is more, I may add, you could never understand me. Yes, but I do. I understand perfectly. I can see where you go wrong. You drew up Mommy's will, and you think Mommy has left all his worth to Harold Tillington. So you're putting every penny you've got on Harold. Well, that's mere moonshine. Harold may think it's all right, but it's not all right. There's many a slip twixt the cup and the probate court. Listen here, Miss Cayley. Higginson and I are a jolly sight sharper than your friend, Harold. Harold's what they call a clever fella in society, and I'm what they call a fool. But I know better than Harold which side of my bread's buttered. Well, I don't doubt it, I answered. Well, I have managed this business. I don't mind telling you now I had a telegram from Mommy's valet when we touched at Aden. And poor old Mommy's sinking. Habakkuk's been too much for him. Sixteen stone going under. Why am I not with him, you may ask? Because when a man of Mommy's temperament is dying, it's safer to be away from him. There's plenty of time for Mommy to alter his will yet. And there's other contingencies. Still, Harold's quite out of it. You take my word for it. If you back Harold, you back a man who's not going to get anything. If you back me, you back the winner with a coronet into the bargain. And he smiled fortuitously. I looked at him with a look that would have made a wiser man wince. But it fell flat on Lord Southminster. 
Do you know why I do not rise and go down to my cabin at once? I said slowly. Because if I did, somebody as passed might see my burning cheeks, cheeks flushed with shame at your insulting proposal, and might guess that you had asked me and that I had refused you. And I should shrink from the disgrace of anyone's knowing that you had put such a humiliation upon me. You have been frank with me, after your kind Lord Southminster. Frank, with the frankness of a low and purely commercial nature. I will be frank with you in turn. You are right in supposing that I love Harold Tillington, a man whose name I hate to mention in your presence. But you are wrong in supposing that the disposition of Mr. Marmaduke Ashurst's money has or can have anything to do with the feelings I entertain towards him. I would marry him all the sooner if he were poor and penniless. You cannot understand that state of mind, of course, but you must be content to accept it. And I would not marry you if there were no other man left in the world to marry. I should as soon think of marrying a lump of dough. I faced him, all crimson. Is that plain enough? Do you see now that I really mean it? He gazed at me with a curious look and twirled what he considered his moustache once more, quite airily. The man was imperturbable, a pachydermaceous imbecile. You're all wrong, you know, he said after a long pause, during which he had regarded me through his spyglass as if I were a specimen of some rare new species. You're all wrong, and you won't believe me. But I tell you, I know what I'm talking about. You think it's quite safe about Marmy's money, that he's left it to Harold, because you drew the will up. I assure you, that will's not worth the paper it's written on. You fancy Harold's a hot favourite. He's a rank outsider. I give you a chance, and you won't take it. I want you because you're a remarkable woman. Most of the Ethels cry when they're trying to make a fellow propose to em. And I don't like em damp. But you have some go about you. You insist upon backing the wrong man. But you'll find your mistake out yet. A bright idea struck him. I say, why don't you hedge? Leave it open till Mommy's gone, and then marry the winner. It was hopeless trying to make this Claude understand. His brain was not built with the right cells for understanding me. Lord Southminster, I said, turning upon him and clasping my hands, I will not go away while you stop here, but you have some spark enough of a gentleman in your composition, I hope not to inflict your company any longer upon a woman who does not desire it. I ask you to leave me here alone. When you have gone, and I have had time to recover from your degrading offer, I may perhaps feel able to go down to my cabin. He stared at me with open blue eyes, those watery blue eyes. Oh, just as you like, he answered. I wanted to do you a good turn because you're the only woman I ever really admired. To say admire, don't you know, not trotted round like the Ethels. 
but you won't allow me. I'll go if you wish it. Though I tell you again, you're backing the wrong man, and sooner or later you'll discover it. I don't mind laying you six to four against him. However, I'll do one thing for you. I'll leave this offer always open. I'm not likely to marry any other woman. Not good enough, is it? And if ever you find out you're mistaken about Harold Tillington, remember, honour bright, I shall be ready at any time to renew my offer. By this time, I was at boiling point. I could not find words to answer him. I waved him away angrily with one hand. He raised his hat with quite a jaunty air and strolled off forward, puffing his cigarette. I don't think he even knew the disgust with which he inspired me. I sat some hours with the cool air playing about my burning cheeks before I mustered up courage to rise and go down below again. End of chapter 8